Ecclesiastes is pretty blunt. It's more BBC News than CBBS. It bluntly and directly helps tell us about life. Um, it's been direct, it's been blunt throughout the time. Um, and the one inevitable fact that we've looked at again and again in the book of Ecclesiastes is that all of us in this room will one day die. It's a blunt way to start, it's a brutal way to start, but it's true. It's been drummed into us for these first three weeks. And the teacher, the person writing the book of Ecclesiastes, he wants us to get this, he wants us to remember this and live in light of it. Not to depress us, not to annoy us on a Sunday afternoon, but to help us really live now. The main question that dominates the teacher is that if we don't live forever, or even long enough to really make a difference in the world, then how should we live? In our first week, Sai helped us see that to learn to live, we need to accept we are going to die. Uh, Lanks, then a couple of weeks ago, helped us see that pursuing pleasure, projects and people will not satisfy. Uh, the teacher tried it and it didn't work. Instead, recognise the true king who alone can fix the greatest problem of death. And Sai last week helped us see that grasping control won't work either. We can't ultimately control our world. We all know that in our own lives, don't we? Seeking control won't bring happiness. Instead, we need to trust God who is in control. And today we're going to see that how we should live is not for ourselves, but for others and for God in love. You saw it earlier. Matthew 22, Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was. And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Today we're going to see that love is not just commanded by law. It's commended by wisdom. You want to live the life of the wise? Live a life of love. And the way the teacher helps us do that is by firstly painting a bleak picture of the opposite. We see a world without love. We see what that looks like. We get three pictures, three pictures of a world without love. We get impression, we get envy, and we get loneliness. So firstly, verses one to three, we look at oppression. It, it's a brutal start uh, to the chapter, isn't it? I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors and they have no comforter. It's true though, isn't it? We live in a brutal world. I flicked onto BBC News yesterday, a quick flick, a scan. A couple have been arrested in Sheffield for murdering two children and another six children in hospital. A six-year-old girl died in American custody having tried to flee El Salvador yesterday. And in India, uh, Prime Minister Modi has been elected again based on a campaign of hatred. Let me read you this from that, uh, that case of uh, Mahendra Murthy being elected again in India, it's fascinating. He goes, in India, dominated by caste as well as class divisions and dominated in Bollywood as well as politics by dynasties, India is a grotesquely unequal society. Its constitution and much political rhetoric upholds the notion that all individuals are equal and possess the same right to education and job opportunities. But the everyday experience of most Indians testify to appalling violations of that principle. A great majority of them forced to inhabit the vast gap between a glossy democratic ideal and a squalid undemocratic reality have long stored up deep feelings of injury, weakness, inferiority, inadequacy and envy. 
These stem from defeats or humiliations suffered at the hands of those of higher status than themselves in a rigid hierarchy. It's one country in our world. And that won't just be the case in India, and we know that, don't we? Does anyone here watch Comic Relief every year? It's weird, isn't it? Think about it. Think about it for a minute. It's weird. For us to actually be forced to think about the inequality, the injustice and the poverty and the evil in this world, we need a comedian to pop up on screen and tell some jokes in between it. Um, if you're not from England, you may not know what Comic Relief is. Basically, it's a, it's, a, it's a fundraiser which takes place over four or five hours once a year. They raise millions for charity, which is great. But the way they per persuade us to give money to charity is by telling us funny jokes every hour because we can't look at the reality. And now with the ability to pause and fast forward TV, how many of us just skip the sad bits and wait until we can distract ourselves and laugh again? We avoid reality as we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. But the teacher here is saying, don't, and he doesn't do it. The teacher's right, isn't he? The top, we see that here, the tears of the oppressed have no comforter. Power's on the side of the oppressors. The top will always abuse the bottom. The powerful will always oppress the weak. This is the world we live in. It was once said that capitalism is the exploitation of man by man, and that communism is the reverse. The problem isn't the form of government. We can't sit there and go, well, India's different. It's not the former government, it's the governors, who are just like us. So verse 2, read verse 2. I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is under the sun. That is bleak, isn't it? The teacher is saying here, maybe the unborn are blessed, those who haven't been in this brutal world. You're able to think of examples in your own lives of, of oppression. Sometimes there are no acceptable answers. Now, you may though go, well, that's not relevant for me. I'm not an oppressor. But then we come to verse 4, and we see this picture of envy. And this is the picture of the human heart. This is the picture of me. It's overstated. Verse 4, isn't it? I saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. It is overstated. All toil and all achievements. But that's how wisdom literature works. But from what I know of my own heart, it can be mainly true. Our motivations are so mixed, aren't they? Uh, think of a student studying for exams. Uh, part of the studying further may be because they passionately love the subject. But how much of it is because they want to beat their classmates or just be slightly better than them? In work, isn't it? A lot of you will know this from work. It's dog eat dog so often, isn't it? Everyone trying to get ahead of the other. When you hear someone else messed up, do you not secretly go, yes, it wasn't me. I might overtake them now in the pecking order. When you hear you've got a worse appraisal than another, do you not get livid? Or a better one, do you not try and find out where you fit in the order? It's not just true in corporate jobs also in the more altruistic ones you see this are those in the care industry or charities or in Christian ministry it's still a problem because this is the human heart for parents how easy is it to compare children try and see why yours is better more advanced than another better behaved or even if we long for children how easy is it to be envious or jealous of those who have them think of Cain and Abel back 
right at the start of the Bible in Genesis, the first murder driven by envy, by jealousy. We want to be the focus of attention. I want to be the focus of attention all of the time. Think about it, if someone's telling a story about something they did, I quickly want to butt in with mine, my opinion, my view. I've got a great story to tell now. If someone else does a great job, I want to tell them about my great job or make an excuse as to my mine wasn't quite as good. We play a comparing game full of envy all the time. Even as we serve here at church, maybe. How much is our desire to be seen to be serving well? So others may see it and may look up to us and appreciate us. What are we driven by? What are you driven by? What am I driven by? Is it jobs, promotion, status, salary? Is it being loved, being looked up to? Preparing this sermon has been brutally convicting in my own heart. A challenge for why I do everything I do. All toil and achievement, it says here, is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. You're looking for meaning, you're not going to find it in trying to achieve a certain aim or a certain goal. It's like the wind. It's like chasing after the wind. I went back to my old school with Caroline a few years ago. When I was there, I was in most of the sports teams. I was a prefect. I enjoyed studying. I was relatively well known around the place. When you're final year of school, it was a small school, but still. I strutted around. When I went back, bar a few faded photos on the wall, it was as if I hadn't been there. See in verse 6. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. We chase after a legacy that the world forgets. Remember, back in our first sermon in Ecclesiastes, Sai showed us pictures of the current 100-metre world record holder and the former one. None of us had a clue who the former one was 100 years ago. He even shows us a picture of the king before Queen Elizabeth, and 90% of the room did not have a clue that was our old king. How do we counter envy? It's a bleak picture. How do we counter envy, though? This needs to be ahead all the time. We see it in our own hearts. We counter it with contentment, tranquility, as it says here in verse 6. We see the latter half of chapter 5. We haven't read it, but it talks about the meaningless of riches, of pursuing money. Verse 10 says this. It says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. Is this you? Always talking about money, about how much you earn or think you deserve to earn, thinking, if only I had this amount of money, then I'd be happy, then I'd be secure. Endlessly looking at others who have more, not just money, maybe it's specific gifts, specific positions people hold. Here in verse 6, pursue contentment. Verse 5 talks about those who are lazy, fold their hands and ruin themselves. The teacher doesn't allow us to think, well, what on earth is the point then? Let's just not work at all. But it does call for balance, it calls for contentment. Better one handful of tranquility than two handfuls of toil and chasing after the wind. People think being content comes by achieving what you desire. I want it, I get it, I'm happy. Just getting your bucket list. But the Christian has another way to contentment. He can bring his desires down to his possessions, to his gifts. Remember Sai last week, we looked at chapter 3. The challenge for us is to live the life we have now. Instead of longing for the life that you think you will have or you want to have, but which you actually can't control at all. G.K. Chesterton, ironically, I'm envious of his pithiness. He says this, he says, there are two ways to get enough. 
One is to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. Friends, flee envy and pursue contentment. We're seeing a picture of a world without love, a, love full of, a world full of oppression, a world full of envy. We're going to see a little bit later about what it looks like for us now today to pursue a life of meaning, a life of love. One way, pursue contentment. Be satisfied with what we have. Thirdly, the third picture we see is loneliness. Verses 8 to 12. It's the result, this result of trying to be number one in every area of our lives. We want to be number one. Everyone else falls at the wayside. Well, we get this bleak picture. Verse 8. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless. A miserable business. It's a picture of a a CEO of a big company who's made it. He's rich as he can be, but no one will share it with him. He has no one to share it with. He has no friends. He has no family. It's a warning if you place work above people, work will never satisfy. No one where they're near death ever seems to say, I wish I spent more time at the office. It's been a challenge for me looking at this. The teacher here is ruthless as he outlines what a life without love looks like. And we long for a better way, don't we? We we read this, we see this and we go, surely not. Surely this is not the way of the world. We long for a better way. Remember Jesus back in Matthew? What does the way of a wise look like? Loving our neighbour as ourselves and loving God with all our hearts. Wisdom here says make relationships central with one another. And then in a minute we're going to see with God fundamentally. See with me in verse 9, read it down with me. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labour. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and there's no one to help them up. It's a verse often used in wedding ceremonies. It's not about marriage, though. It's speaking of friendship supremely, of community. We like to think of ourselves as strong, don't we? In this society, being independent is seen as a real virtue. I can do it myself. I can live by myself. I can... But we're reminded that together we are strong. It's a glib phrase we see across sports teams, buses, or we're probably going to see in the upcoming election. Together we are strong. But it's true. We need others. We need friends. We need church family. It's one of our key values as a church, caring for church family. Verses 11 and 12. If two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. It's a picture of those who would travel together and need to keep warm. A picture of the need for friendship. A cord of three strands not quickly broken. Because you see, our world, when we look at it, we've seen the brutalness of it. We see it's got a loneliness epidemic. We've never been so connected with our smartphones, with our WhatsApp messages back and forth all the time. But for millions, we're connected, but we're lonely. We have connectedness but no intimacy. There's a problem of real loneliness and the teacher has been proven right by research. The best way to live is with others in our lives. The BBC had an article on it recently and it's stark. We live in an age of connectedness but utter loneliness. They did research on mortality and loneliness and the report said this. It said the researchers were able to look at the lives of almost 310,000 people for an average of seven and a half years, a seriously big sample. What emerged was that those with stronger social relationships had a 50% increased likelihood of survival than those who lived more solitary lives. A seriously powerful finding. 
The effect was consistent across a number of factors, age, gender, health status, follow-up period, and cause of death. The teacher is wise, he's right. For anyone in this church, for anyone we encounter, we long for there to be no loneliness, for there to be a depth in our relationships. It's why we have our, our small groups and our growth groups. It's why we encourage people to get here at 3.30 before church, to share life with each other, to stay afterwards and have kids eat together, to spend time with each other. Friends, but we work hard to love those around us, both in our church and on our streets, to fight against loneliness, to love sacrificially. It will be costly. We live in a culture where proximity but not community. Let's buck that trend. We all long for this life, for love, for contact. Many look to sex to fill that gap, but that just ends up making you feel more empty than you did before. Others go after ambition, thinking that will work. We're reminded in verses 13 to 16 it won't. Verses 13 to 16, at the end of chapter 4, that they're a parable. It's it seems when you read the commentaries, it's pretty hard to translate this story, but it's basically a story of modern day politics, saying it doesn't take long for the next great thing to emerge. Strive to be the leader, well, you'll be knocked down. David Cameron came and went, Theresa May, just now is the fourth shortest prime minister ever, and we're now gonna have another one for a short amount of time, and then we'll have another one, and another one, and another one, and another one. Don't seek advancement, seek relationship seek love seeking advancement seeking number one in all things is a life without love and that is meaningless that's bleak let's look at a life with love at the center as we move into chapter five we get a picture of what a life of meaning looks like a life with god at the center no one listening here today maybe we probably have too much of a problem with what i've said in the first half of the sermon maybe Life of love? Yeah, great, get it. That's what Comic Relief's all about. It's love and care for each other. I get that, that's all we need. But that love comes fundamentally out of a deep and sincere love of God at the centre. The teacher tells us there's no relationship more important than our one with God. When the people of Israel were camped at the edge of the Promised Land, uh, Moses, uh, God's prophet at the time, he preached a sermon to them. Uh, and these were his instructions to them, God's instructions to how they should live in the land they would receive. It says here, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. There is one undivided God. And we see here at the start of chapter 5. Because God is like this, he must be approached by one undivided person. All of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength. God is not pulled in different directions, and so we shouldn't be in our worship of him. It's a challenging passage. Are we undivided? If our relationship with God is our most important relationship, then the challenge now is to do a bit of a stock check, have a bit of time later to do that, and ask if that actually matches up with how we think and how we act. This has been really challenging for me. Read with me the start of chapter 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. 
who do not know that they do wrong. So we see four things here of what life of love at the centre looks like. It says come prepared, a call to come prepared as we come to the house of God. It's a challenge, isn't it? Are we intentional and prepared when we come to church on a Sunday? I had a really good friend. I lived with him uh, for a number of years uh, back in Oxford who every Saturday night he built his own template he designed. It had space to write in it. He wrote these things. He wrote, who am I going to deliberately seek to speak to and encourage at church the next day? Who am I going to sit next to with a little reminder of going, look, be on the lookout for new people? He was an introvert, but he went, I, I want to love and care for new people. So he had this on a little template. He'd write down the passage that was to be preached on so he could read it beforehand. And he had space to write down how he was going to obediently apply what God said to him through his word at church the next day. He prepared to come to the house of God because he took it seriously. Do we do that? That's why we sang that song before we started today, to prepare our hearts ready to listen to God's word. It's challenging, isn't it, to live an undivided life? And that's not just something for a Sunday. Our second piece of advice from a teacher in Ecclesiastes is stop and listen. Verse 1 says, Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know they do wrong. The ear is the primary organ for the Christian. God has spoken by his word, so listen. You're confused about why the world is as it is in chapter 4? Let's listen. Confused as to why your life is as it is? Listen. The sacrifice of fools? What on earth is this? Well, it seems to be saying this, it's easy to go through the motions in our relationship with God, isn't it? To give him the sacrifice of our time and our singing to go, God, I'm here, aren't I? It's a bank holiday weekend, not many are here, but I'm here. Look at me. It's a challenge to us. To me, it's easy to be here in some ways. It's easy to come before God lightly and to not actually engage with him. It's easy to do that in the week, isn't it? I go to home group, I do ladies' Bible study, I try and pray hard every morning. But we're called here to stop and listen first. God is saying this, he's saying, all these activities you do for me, that's all very well. That singing, that preparing of refreshments, that visit you paid to another member from church, that meal you made for new parents, whatever it might be, they're great. That's all very well. But remember this, and hear this warning, it's possible to do all those things without actually having a relationship with God, which is all that truly matters. He says, I am your father. Have a relationship with me. Take God seriously is the call. Don't be a hypocrite. I remember uh, my third year at uni, I was drifting in my walk of the Lord. But I played the game. I acted the good Christian boy whilst my heart was in utter rebellion. The end of verse 7, he has no pleasure in fools, therefore fear God. An undivided God demands an undivided worshipper. Stop and listen. And now, thirdly, we're reminded about how we are to approach God. God on his terms, not ours. Verse 2 is such a helpful reminder. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. That has been a real rebuke for me this week. My dad was my headmaster at school. When at school, he wasn't just my dad, he was Mr. Reed. When I saw him in the corridors or was called to his office, I needed to remember my place, remember who he was. I couldn't act in the same way I would at home with him. It had to be different. And the teacher reminds us here to not rush into God without thinking and remembering who he is. He is our father, but he is our holy God. God welcomes all, no matter who you are or what you've done. B 
but he is a God of amazing holiness, of power or perfection. Let's not be glib as we come before the Lord with what we say and what we do. Remember who he is and who you are. As verse 7 says, fear God. C.S. Lewis, whose book we're going to read later, he talks about this in his brilliant series with The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Mr. Beaver has animals who talk. You just have to get on with that. It tells Susan that Aslan, the ruler of Narnia, is a great lion. Susan's surprised since she assumed Aslan was a man. She then tells Mr. Beaver, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. She asks Mr. Beaver if Aslan is safe, to which Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good and he's the king. He's the king. He's in heaven, not you, not me. We make the world about ourselves, but it's not about us. He's the king and he calls us to listen because he knows best. When we love and care for others, instead of trying to solve their problems with clever words or advice, let's keep pointing them again and again to God who is spoken by his word. God who is in heaven, God who is in charge. I found it really easy, dangerously easy in pastoral conversations to try and think of a clever saying or a life experience I've had to try and solve a problem. Hear this rebuke here. I'm hearing this word here. Let your words be few. Listen. Point towards the words of God in heaven who has spoken. And so fourthly, as we approach God in his terms, it's told to think before we speak. You may think it odd what it says here. It says, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. You may be thinking, what on earth? I don't make any vows anymore. These will be the vows which will be going on and maybe some of these resonate with you. Give me a child, Lord, and I'll dedicate it to you. They would have said, maybe bless my harvest, Lord, and I'll give you the first 10 sheep. If I get that pay rise, Lord, I'll give you more money. The teacher says, if you say it, you do it. We've all done this. Maybe you're sitting here today, you've heard an invitation to follow Jesus at a talk, maybe decades ago, to give your whole life a challenge. I'll follow and give you my whole life. And you went, I'll do that. I'll follow you. But maybe you're sitting here now and some of you have drifted a long way from that. Maybe you've never been physically away from church, but in your heart, you're not following through your vow to him. Maybe it's a persistent sin. You've focused on it again and again, and you've said, I'll never do it again. And yet you keep doing it. The call here is to stand in awe of God and not take him so lightly. We take God lightly, and the call here is to stop that. And finally, we see the love of a holy God. Because this might lead you to despair. You might say to me, what a world I live in and what a bar this is to fulfill our vows for the Lord, to, to come in with a seriousness. It seems impossible, doesn't it? And yet we want it, don't we? We long for this life of love, but it's not easy. It's important to see if the teacher here himself has not nailed it. He is longing for the one to come. The only one who could perfectly fulfill this call to love. You see... Jesus wasn't a moral teacher who came and told us how to be good. He did perfectly love others. He did perfectly love God. He delighted to do what pleased his father, not out of legalism, but love. But he came to earth not as a teacher, but as a saviour to die in our place. He took the punishment we deserve for our rebellion, our lack of love of God. Now, that in and of itself would be amazing, wouldn't it? Forgiveness offered for our guilty lack of love. But he didn't just deal with that problem. 
If we sit here today, if we're trusting in Jesus now, he's given us a new heart. And so by his spirit, we long to love. There's a new passion in our heart. We've been transformed and we have the Holy Spirit to help us to love. Another one of our key values here as a church is reaching people in Bicester and beyond. On our, we have a wheel which describes the culture we would love to see. We outline some sentences which we pray and we hope uh, would be what people might say about us as a church, as a people. One of them is this, it says, they were so intentional in getting alongside me and sharing the gospel. Second one says, they're a generous bunch who sacrificed much for the needs of others. We long as a church to see and hear this when people come and meet us. We know it won't be that this happens though because we're nice people. It will only be as we're gripped and transformed by the love of Jesus. So let us go from here determined to love and determined to resist the downward pull of oppression. With the hope of the Holy Spirit, we can live a life of sacrificial love for others and a wholehearted love for God. It will be costly. It will be. Costly in terms of energy as we spend time with others who maybe all we've got in common with them is they're made in the image of God, just like we are. Or if they're Christians, it may be the only thing we have in common is that they're brothers and sisters in Christ. So a deep sacrificial love for others will be costly. It may cost time. It may cost emotional energy. It may cost money. As we're content with what we have and determined to give away the rest to bless people and help others. It will be costly. Following Christ wholeheartedly will be costly. And it can't be done half-heartedly, we're warned here. It can't just be something on the side just at weekends. Following Jesus must be central to everything we do. If life is like a river, pursuing Christ requires swimming, up, swimming upstream. When we stop swimming or we stop actively following him, we automatically begin getting swept downstream. Or if you live in a city or if you live in a town, more modern analogy, we're, never, we're on a never-ending downward escalator. We're always going down. And in order to grow, we need to turn around and sprint up the escalator, putting up with the annoyed looks from everyone else who's gradually moving downwards. It's costly. A deep love for others and for God will be hard and it will be costly, but worth it. I'm not worth loving. You're not worth loving, but Jesus loved us so much that he came and died for us costly for him but worth it a life full of love for those around us and love of god is not meaningless by god's strength by the help of his spirit let's go now and love wholeheartedly fully deeply as we go and live in this world let me pray and we're gonna have a chance to stop and reflect Father, thank you that you first loved us. Not because of anything which within us which makes us lovable, by the fact we're made in your image, Lord, but we've rebelled and yet you love us. You love us deeply, you love us sacrificially. Lord, and we long to live a life of, uh, which is the life you want us to live, a life which loves you first and foremost and help us to do that we need your help by your spirit to do that lord we we have hearts which drift every day we need your help to repent to say sorry every day come back to you knowing that you are a god of love who cares for us lord but you're a god who calls us to live for you and you alone to take our faith seriously help us to do that as well lord 
Lord, life without you is meaningless. Life without love is meaningless. Help us to love others around us as well, Lord. Help us to care for those within our church family. Help us to care and love for those who do not know you in Bista. With the most loving thing we can do to tell them about your great, magnificent love, Lord. Help us to do that. Give us a boldness and desire to do that, Lord, because we know our achievements will fade. Our um, legacies will be non-existent but you and you alone remain. Lord, to help us to love you deeply, to love those around us sacrificially, to count the cost and follow you in everything we do. In your precious name, amen.